If you could live in the world of any creator's body of work, whether film, TV, literature, music, whose would you visit and where would you want to go? Not John Carpenter's. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's scary in there. It is scary. It's cool, but it's, uh, I don't know if I would want to stay there. They are, a lot of them are nightmares. Even the fun ones like Big Trouble in Little China are sort of out of control. You don't want to live in Hobbs End? <laughs> no Hobbs End for me. <laughs> no Hobbs End. Do you have an answer for that, John? Uh, that's a tough one, man. Because it's not necessarily like your favorite director. Right. Like Wes Anderson's movies seem like they'd be cozy to hang out in. <laughs> if I'm, you know what yeah. I mean? Like yes, danger I know is mean. low. And, yes, uh, <laughs> danger is low. Comfort yes. is high. Comfort, uh, high comfort. So that's one option. I don't know. Spielberg? A lot of divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where would I want to hang out? Um, I have to admit, I like things that have a little bit of a isolation quality to them. <laughs> and I don't know. I do like people, but uh, I like, uh, so I don't know why, but I like sort of the tranquility kind of thing. So it would probably be in some Western or something. Um, That's a good answer. I don't know, but uh, the I've always like I love the film uh, the Lusty Men, this Nicholas Ray film. I always wanted to be Robert Mitchum, kind of wandering around in that film, uh, you know, through uh, through sort of uh, closed rodeos and tumbleweeds and stuff. That would be one answer, but it it would it would get lonely, I suppose. Maybe John Waters' world. It just seems like. They, that, it seems like weird, but friendly, you know? Depends on the movie. <laughs> yes, yes. But like fun, weird, but like sort of sweet. Yeah, I don't think you'd last too long in the with, Old West. <laughs> maybe I'd do better with the egg lady. You might do better with, with Waters. <laughs> yeah, with the egg lady. <laughs> Welcome back to Split Picks. We're doing a special October series here. We've been looking at some of the lesser-known works of the great American titans of horror. Last week with Bennett Glace and Jim Hickox, we looked at Toby Hooper's Life Force and Spontaneous Combustion. This week, we're turning to John Carpenter. So for today's episode, we're welcoming back Steve Collins. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing good. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's I'm up in Connecticut. It's uh, Octobery and uh, you know pumpkin spice season. It's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got the full dose of fall weather today. So yeah, and the building burned down two blocks away at work. Weird day, but yeah. Ah, that is weird. <laughs> Spooky season and fall hit at once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Appropriate for a John Carpenter discussion, though. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it was a junk store that burned down too. So, yeah kind of symbolic mm. <laughs> <laughs> in making his split picks debut is actor 
John Merriman. John, how are you doing today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, glad you could both make it, because for longtime readers of the site, you may recognize these two names from Brett's essay about Gretchen, which Steve directed and John starred in. Fantastic movie if you haven't seen it, but we're so excited to have the two of you together here. So thanks for joining us. We're happy to be here. Yes. I am very excited about today's matchup because we're looking at two Carpenter films from the 90s. He is in an elite class of filmmakers where when you ask someone to list their top five favorite movies he's made, someone's going to be mad about your number six because they think that should be number one. So why don't we go into what you guys both chose today? Steve, do you want to go first since we'll be covering that one first? Yeah, I chose In the Mouth of Madness uh, because I don't think it gets any love, and it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a box office flop, and uh, and I think it's actually pretty interesting, and and really I think his best movie of the of the '90s at least, uh, which was is not saying a lot, <laughs> you know, with <laughs> Memoirs of the Invisible Man in there, and uh, and Ghosts of Mars. I guess Ghosts of Mars is after that, but uh, it's not a great decade for him. Uh, but uh, I think it's a solid movie and uh, and deserves uh, des- deserves another look. If no one's uh, if 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 uh, you know people haven't checked it out, cannot agree more. It is so fun. John, what are you bringing with us today? Well, I picked vampires. I mean, it's a little trick tricky. We were kind of trying to pick ones that are lesser known, um, and uh, this is one I hadn't seen in several years i remember it being you know having some moments um it's a strange one um but uh i mean like i mentioned it's got it's it's definitely very unique you know i like that he just goes for it on these small budgets and makes these decisions about character and stuff i mean you could argue that James Woods is pretty unlikable in this. Movie. <laughs> yeah. And I'd be hard pressed to defend him. But um, but I, I find that kind of interesting that he's like that. And it kind of plays nicely with the, the vampire thing. And it's got some really fun sequences. It's got some cool little uh, gadgets and, and such. Uh, and uh, a few scenes that are really fun. That's one thing I, you know, uh, he's not a carpenter. Is not afraid. Uh, he he does make horror, but he's not afraid, and he's very bold. He'll really jump and launch into something. Uh, and uh, he uh, uh, he's not timid as a filmmaker. He's he's bold, and I like that. And yet he's also very simple. So he has a strange kind of combination of being very bold and making these kind of big leaps. And then being very kind of clean and simple. And that's uh, an unusual combination. Yeah, one thing that's come up in this series is how, you know, next week we're talking about Wes Craven. So much of his career was marred by studio interference. And John Carpenter really, of these four, seems to be the one who was best suited for the studio, the, the modern studio system. I mean, do you guys agree with that? Well, you would uh, you would think, but uh, he didn't he didn't have a great. I mean, he had Starman, but um, he didn't have a great time. Big Trouble in Little China. Um, he he sort of left working studio and went independent after that, and so he really struggled with the interference uh, uh, of everything, you know, of of the studio. So, but he is a like a he's like a big fan of Howard Hawks and and he's like that he does all sorts of different genres and he has a kind of even his 
general kind of philosophy of life of just like a, a kind of respect for the working man and the group and the team yes. uh, is very Hawksian. Uh, so he, he, you would think he would work in this, in this system, but you know, I think the system that Hawks was in was not the same system of 1970s, 1980s. And he did struggle in it. And, and he did in memoirs of the invisible man when he went back to the, uh, a studio. So, um, but he did have some real big success also. And, uh, certainly, you know, right, you know, at Starman, uh, he was, uh, he was really one of the, you know, top directors in the country after that, which is, I guess, why he chose to do such a bizarre movie like Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> and I respect him for that because that's really taken a swing. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I mean, uh, I love that he, uh, you know, isn't afraid to kind of just take a stab at something new, it feels like. I mean, you know, vampires, obviously there have been vampire movies. Obviously there have been, you know, other horror movies. But yeah, like Big Trouble in Little China, like there's not really anything like that, you know. It, it was interesting kind of in prepping for this. I had never seen uh, Prince of Darkness and I watched Ooh. that over the weekend and uh, really saw some parallels with like the thing and uh, oddly a little bit with uh, vampires where it is like this group of kind of working class people. I mean, some of them in, in that were kind of more academic, but still like, you know, uh, uh, just regular people. Um, they live as that, too, where it's just kind of regular people coming together and, and kind of taking a stand. And yeah, I mean, it, it is there's there are a lot of it a lot his films have in common a lot obviously they don't have in common on first glance but yeah i think that that uh, you're absolutely right about the the kind of common man working man you know uh who doesn't take any shit exactly exactly <laughs> and there is something there's just he's got a certain thing between a very kind of kind of working class thing and then these worlds of like wonder and the unknown and stuff so you have like this kind of mystic stuff and then you've got this like really kind of i mean it's a kind of hard-boiled but like yeah uh, but like uh <laughs> it's his own version of hard-boiled which is you know like a little bit dumb or like a little bit uh, and I mean that in a, like an affectionate way, but like right. a little bit like um, uh, a little bit more gruff than uh, or a little bit more unrefined. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, and sort and, but you know, boastingly undefined, unrefined. Uh, they're sort of like uh, um, like some of people. I mean, I'm thinking of the, what's his name? Jack Burton and Big Trouble. Some of these people are sort of like kind of like lovable, lovable dolts, you know, or, you know, uh, and, um, and, you know, I, I find that very endearing. Now, uh, the, that's not the case with Mouth of Madness. You've got an, uh, an insurance agent, uh, you know, played by Sam Neill, who's, who's your protagonist. But I, I sort of like, I sort of see that, you know, in, in, in the Mouth of Madness, you've got somebody who's, job is to you know is 
to make all the kind of he's sort of essentially a glorified accountant you know he's got to make all the numbers uh uh balance and make sure that the you know the insurance claim is done properly and all of that and so he's kind of a a logic uh he's a logic guy and then he's presented with this world of complete illogic uh and you know i, I don't especially watching all the work that i did in the last like 3 weeks getting ready for this you can sort of see that like the John Trent character, the Sam Neill character in, uh, uh, in, in Mouth of Madness is kind of like, he's sort of like the audience that resists something like The Thing that goes so batshit crazy or something like Big Trouble, which goes so batshit crazy. He is sort of a stand-in for that audience that like didn't go to those movies. <laughs> And then he takes him and he puts him in a movie and he tortures him. <laughs> and and that's to me the fun of In the Mouth of Madness, seeing this guy try to make uh, a very unreal world, uh, try to deny its existence. Uh, and it just keeps coming back and back and back. I do think it might be fun to jump into Mouth of Madness by, by going straight for the weirdness. So. John, you've worked on a podcast that focuses on knockoff films. Mouth of yes. Madness. I'm curious, which character in this world would you most like to see a knockoff film of? Ooh, that's really interesting. Maybe the... Uh, <laughs> my first uh, instinct is to say the kind of child, old man... Biking. On the bike, I was going <laughs> to yes. say that too. <laughs> yes. Little man on the bike. I don't know what it would be, but uh... yeah, just follow him around. <laughs> follow him around. I think what's he, just he gets doing? Older. Does he got a paper out? <laughs> what's he doing? Yeah, what's what's his deal? He's a working man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Probably got a newspaper route. Uh, yeah, probably he's got some one-liners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve, what about you? Uh. Uh, if well, he took the best one. Uh, <laughs> oh, I've got another one. Oh, you got one? What do you got? Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, yeah. <laughs> What's Charlton Heston doing? Does he do anything? I want more Charlton Heston. Yeah. As, as he Charlton do... Heston, or like put him <laughs> yeah. in the world? Oh, yeah. He could go into the world looking for Sam Neill. That, that'd be good. Ooh. Yeah. Omega and then Man, he goes too. Yeah. And then, yeah. There we go. I want to know more about the hotel clerk, the grandma from Happy yes. Gilmore. I love her. Yes, She's absolutely. so cool. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the film has a great like pace of sort of layering weird upon crazy, upon disturbing, upon like it has a really great pace. And it's something I like about uh, Carpenter is he's got a nice, he's got like a very kind of driving rhythm and he's, patient and he lets it build and then he lets it really <laughs> kind of fall on top of you know itself you know and you think about that in you know i mean it's like in halloween it's like a very slow burn and then it starts just overlapping and falling on itself and you know and you you fall into and i feel like i'm i always feel like as a i'm in good hands when i'm uh when I'm watching things and I really like the hysteria, this thing builds into, you know, Trent goes into that, uh, uh, he goes into that Hobbs end world inside this book. Uh, and, uh, and everything just kind of, uh, everything starts creeping out into his world and he's trying to push it back. 
and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And you really get into uh, that kind of hysteria. My favorite moment in the film is when uh, he's trying to back up and his partner, uh, he's trying to back up from that horde of like zombie people coming at him and his partner, the, the kind of uh, sort of, she's sort of like a forties Rosalind Russell type. Uh, she uh, uh, swallows the car keys <laughs> and he yes. just goes, he goes nuts. And he's just like, no, <laughs> you know, he's just like losing it. And Sam Neill's like, he's very, he's actually really, you know, he's, he's a really good in this part. He's great uh, in it. He really yeah. is great. And he's done, you know, he's done other, I mean, he's does this, he goes nuts like this in a couple other movies like possession. And, uh, but, uh, but it's tough. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a lot to ask of your actor. I, mean, I know it's like such a, I know you exactly know, crazy like fade world. in insane yeah. asylum. Right. <laughs> You're in a straitjacket. You know, I mean it is. It it's it's a lot to ask for. Yeah, yeah. So Steve, let's back up for one second. We've mentioned this kind of a wild world. Can you briefly introduce us to what's going on in this movie? So uh <laughs> there's a, a an a fictional author called Sutter Kane that's made up for the movie that's supposed to be a Stephen King type and he's gone missing and John Trent who is played by Sam Neill is sent in uh to try to find out if Sutter Kane is dead or if maybe there's some hanky-panky and they're fi- filing a false insurance claim or something the publishers because they stand to lose you know millions if he if he doesn't return and so he goes on a hunt with uh the uh who is it is he's the editor she's yeah she's his editor she's his editor she goes on a hunt with the uh linda styles i think is the character's name and uh they go on a hunt to go find kane and they uh trent sort of uh sam neill's character sort of rips off all the paper all the covers of uh the sutter kane books and he finds that if you cut them out and sort of arrange them it makes new hampshire a map of new hampshire which is kind of funny but i i sort of love it they find new hampshire and there's a red dot and that's where hobbs end is and it, that's the fictional town in the movie and they uh they drive to hobbs end and cross over into the netherworld uh, and they look and they go in search of Sutter Kane and turns out he's in a castle typing a, a book that he's going to try to send back to the real world and it's going to make everyone insane. Uh, when you read this book, it's it drives you crazy. Uh, and so it's a kind of apocalyptic uh, type situation there. <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve, you have an essay that you wrote for us about this film that'll be coming out towards the end of the month. One thing I hadn't thought of that I really appreciate from your essay, why do you think Carpenter had an insurance agent be the star? Yeah, I was well, I I was just thinking about it that I that I think it actually works really well, the insurance agent uh, character. And I was thinking of other insurance agents in film history like uh, C.C. Baxter uh, from The Apartment or or Walter Neff from A Double Indemnity. And I thought, you know, that's a good character like a, a insurance agent is like kind of like a private detective, but they don't have like the the any of the swagger or the rogue. So, like a private detective is like a cool cop, <laughs> but right. a, an insurance agent 
is like a is like worse than a cop. It's like <laughs> it's like a real like gray. It's like a bean counter, you know, <laughs> and it's like a gray flannel suit. Like it's like it, it's a real square. And, you know, I think it, it works really well because he like an insurance encounter wants to be like a cog in the machine, like it's happy to be a cog. And it's a good character to then have to go into a creative kind of world, like a creative unknown. And that's kind of what I was writing about is that, you know, Carpenter uses it as a way to talk about going into an unknown creative world. It's like, which is kind of what you have to do as a, you know, as a, as a, if you're a good viewer of art or cinema, you have to be willing to go and leave reality. I mean, that is kind of what we come for. Not that it doesn't have anything to do with reality, but you have to be willing to leave <laughs> and go. And the the uh, insurance adjuster is sort of a, I think, a perfect character for that. The script's written by Michael DeLuca, who's um, who later became uh, head of. Um, uh, production at uh, MGM, and uh, uh, I think at this time was uh, running New Line at this time, and uh, he's one of the youngest, I think, uh, sort of sort of studio heads ever, you know. But the guy's like a born sort of storyteller, uh, and uh, and they seem to sort of Carpenter and him seem to share this this interest in throwing this uh, gray flannel suit into a real world of madness. So like this, this character isn't like a lot of the other, he's not like, like we'll see in vampires though. That's an unsuccessful version maybe of the kind of lovable rogue uh, that Kurt Russell played <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so many times. <laughs> he's sort of like an unlovable rogue. But uh, um, this is really, you know, a little different. This is like really throwing in a square into into that world. But I'll, I'll counter by saying he is also just like a lot of Carpenter characters. He's just a guy doing his job. Yes. He doesn't seem to have any particular love for it. It's just like he's just doing his job. He wants to, like, you know, get it done. So, I mean, in that sense, he reminds me of, you know, some of the other Carpenter characters. But, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think the thing about him being a little bit like a private detective without any of the kind of worldly experience um, totally is is a great a great little character trait. He's like an unarmed man, you know, thrown into this uh, hell. You yes, know. that's right. He's yeah. an yeah, he's an office guy out in the field kind. Yeah. Of. I think his skepticism is his most important trait for the film. Yes. Carpenter's such a master of mood and in this movie he throws so much at you, but like you said, Steve, it just kind of compounds as the movie goes on and then all of a sudden it's like, how did we get to this point? You know? <laughs> but how, how do you Yeah. What do you feel yeah. are kind of the keys to how Carpenter builds the mood and the reality here? Well, he he brings you in really slowly, you know, at first before they get to Hobbs End, you're kind of, he opens, you know, he has Sam Neill's character open the book and he starts having these fantasies of the book and he makes the book start coming alive, like on Sam Neill's couch, basically. Sam Neill has this fantasy of seeing a cop 
sort of beating someone up down an alley and then suddenly the cops on his couch. And so it, it really kind of has a slow build. And then as they tr travel over there, you know, slowly things start to look. So it's a real kind of slow unfurling. And then when he, when he gets there, there's a kind of screwball plot going on that kind of hooks you into like, oh, what's going on in this world? But it makes really, you never really can figure out what's going on. It's it's some plot about like a son that's being kept in the castle and or in the church. And, you know, then there was disease spreading to the children and then it's spreading and the father's trying to get the son out of the thing. But it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> like it's one of those plots that you understand, oh, it, it doesn't matter. This is just about scary stuff is happening. And it's very referential to, it's sort of like, oh, this is a movie plot that we're watch walking into. And it's much more self-referential than uh, than any of his other work, really. It, it's, I mean, <laughs> except maybe for Big Trouble in Little China, but like, which has like, you know, like five movies inside of it <laughs> happening as well, you know? But the, the, uh, you get there and you just can't you can't follow all this going on and it feels like you've been thrown into the like like there's a real missing in the movie and you've been thrown into this situation where suddenly all these people are charging this church uh and they're going to confront Sutter Kane and tell him to give back this kid and you you're totally disoriented and i i really enjoy this feeling and i i know this film isn't popular with a lot with a lot of people. And I think maybe I just enjoy this feeling of being thrown into something and the, and something really bizarre just keeps happening. You know, you mentioned the, uh, they've got like a lovely uh, caretaker, this old woman uh, at the bed and breakfast they're staying in. And you sort of like, after they leave, you kind of, uh, you kind of boom down and and you see that uh, she's got this naked old man tied up like right at her feet. Uh, and she's like, you know, abusing him, her husband, I think it's supposed to be. Uh, like it's, you just keep unfurling all this underneath uh, that's happening. Uh, and they, it's got the thinnest little plot explaining it. And I, I like that about it. <laughs> I like that they don't try to make it make too much sense that it's just, no, you're inside a horror plot that you've just been dropped into. Uh, and it, it's sort of, I don't know. It, it, it's, it, 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 it sort of makes you have to confront like, Hey, what, what do you come to the movies for? Are you looking for logic or are you, are you looking for the kind of ride, uh, the kind of emotional ups and downs you get from a story like this? It's a kind of thumb. It's a thumb at the nose of logic, and uh, I, I kind of like that about it. And it kind of uses the shorthand of Stephen King, Sutter Kane. The books look like his. A lot of the the stuff in the world. You know, the woman works at a hotel. You've got the kids, kind of like Children of the Corn. You know, you, it kind of uses that shorthand uh, to kind of. You, you get that like, oh, I'm in this author's world who's written a whole bunch of different stuff, but here it is all kind of existing at once in this 
almost like Disneyland world or something right. <laughs> where it's like all kind of happening at once. Yeah, Lovecraft's um, And that's Disney really world. fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good way of putting it. You've got, yeah, you've got scary dogs over here like Cujo and you've got scary children like Village of the Damned and yes. you've got, you know, you've got scare or Children of the Corn. And, you know, and, you know, over here, you've got some Lovecraftian tentacles coming up. And yes. Th- this you got lady's... like the antique shop from like Needful Things. Yes. Kind of, you know, whatever. Yeah. No, absolutely. And of course, Hobbs End is is like this these towns that in Maine that uh, that King writes about. And then I I really like the I'm not like a Lovecraft uh, uh you know, expert or anything, but I really like this tentacle stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these, these things, these like monsters just like sprouting up. And I, I really, these are some good monsters. So one of my favorite things about this series has been reading some of the reviews from the time when these films came out. I, the, my main takeaway is that most critics don't seem to understand the fun part of horror. I mean, it's just, some of the things they say about these films are absolutely incredible and this one was not panned but it seems to have been mixed reviews at best i mean Mm -hmm. i think i I guess how do you suggest people approach this film because it is not your standard feature like the plot is kind of the least important thing (laughs) i mean i think if you try to approach it as like i mean i like I notice when it starts, you're you sort of notice there's a stiffness between styles in him, and you do sort of wonder, wait, is this like bad casting and no chemistry, or is this? And then it, as it unfolds, of course, she is part of the book, and she sprouts insect wings, and you know, it's like it doesn't really this is chemistry. Who cares? <laughs> you know, it's not an actor piece. You know, it it it's about going into unwillingly it's about a guy who doesn't want to be inside a creative world and the world insists and it grows and he becomes part of that <laughs> creative world and he's stuck as a character in a book it's about a nightmare about a logical person who doesn't want this world of creativity but it's not the kind of carpenter movie where you have a badass snake pliskin totally where you've got this kind of gruff badass that you can get. It doesn't have an easy, as easy an alignment <laughs> uh, for you to uh, participate in because it's also a little bit, uh, it's slightly critical of uh, the cog in the machine also. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think you have to look at it like, I, I mean, the way I found it is to look at it like, a, I think of it as like, uh, you know, a movie about, what if you were thrown into a piece of art, (laughs) you know, you know, cause art is crazy. It's, you know, I mean, movies are crazy. They're they're they're, You're riding on these waves of emotion. Uh, What if you were thrown inside that, you know, Uh, and you were actually inside a movie, they're all little universes of madness. Uh, Even if, I mean, even if you're talking about like a, a, like a bicycle thief or something that's, you know, realist, uh, they still are intensely artificial, you know. Uh, but that's probably the film professor in me. Yeah. <laughs> it's also kind of cr- one of those crazy movies. I've seen it multiple times, but like if you just flipped it on, flipped on the TV and it was on, 
you'd be hard pressed to know like at what point in the movie we're in. Right. You know, it's one of those ones where it's like, have I been watching this for 15 minutes or for like an hour? It just, there's so much, you know, you jump around from all these different worlds. There's the guy with the ax at the cafe. You got him in the insane asylum. You've got, you know, and and stuff happens so quickly that it, it feels like even at the beginning, it feels like you've been watching it for like a while. It's very dense with, uh, with plot and, even even when the plot is is like you say kind of inconsequential it's just there's so much going on all the time the other thing i like about th- this movie also is having like a little it has a little kind of critique in it about uh sort of just like the mindless machine of like publicity right. the 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 whole movie starts out with like this printing press just like printing out like violently all these uh, copies of the Sutter Kane book. Like it has a kind of a clever uh, little critique of like, I mean, this is great if we're like promoting something's good, <laughs> that's good. But what if we're promoting something that's evil? Like the machine doesn't care what it's promoting. It's just like spitting it out. And I mean, I think it resonates with me as like a movie lover. Like when you're just hammered with all this advertising campaign and then you go to the movie and you're like, this thing is evil, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or at least if not evil, just like really inane, which is a kind of evil, you know, I mean, it's sort of like the banality of evil, you know, it's like, it is a kind of evil, like the inanity that is like out there in the theater sometimes. So Steve, one thing about your essay is it's part of a series you've done about art on film and this one you're looking at what happens when it maybe becomes its own world essentially do you want to give us a little just a little background on this series and how this fits in yeah i just started getting interesting and in, interested in uh in how people put how filmmakers put different art forms on the on the screen and make stories about artists from different uh mediums and so I found this one a really interesting to write about. I mean, there's so many bad movies about authors because you're just stuck with that damn typewriter. It's such a, it's one of the hardest things to translate into cinema because it's all inside and the physical action of doing it is so boring to look at. Uh, and so you have to find a way to bring it, put it into action, make it come alive. And this is one of the, you know, this is one, this is a clever solution, uh, which is really to take the reader and make them, in this case, a reader who does not want to read the book, <laughs> who does not want to have the creative experience of reading the book, but has to for his job, reads the book, and then the book become, comes alive. He actually travels in a car to the book, not in his mind, <laughs> in a car, and travels to Hobbs End, and the book comes alive in front of him like a plot. It, this this thing works, you know, to actually give you the experience of falling into someone's creative world. Uh, and Carpenter's good at that, and that really is, a lot of his work is about falling into some kind of unknown or creative thing. Uh, that's why I keep bringing up Big Trouble in Little China. I just love that movie. You're in this movie, and at some point they're driving that truck, and Wang says, take a right. (laughs) And you go down this alley, and then there's this whole movie going on. There's this whole martial arts mystical thing going on in there 
that's down the alley to the right. If he had gone left, there must there's Sir Western over there. What's over there? <laughs> you know, and this is like this is another version of that where Trent is going to go to Hobbs End. He's going, he's taking a right, he's going into Hobbs End and he's crossing over into the creative world. And what I like about it as a filmmaker and and is that's what you're trying to do no matter what kind of movie you're making. You're trying to get them to cross over and join your world. Uh, and filmmakers, we feel very strong about it. And we're very, uh, we're, we have a very mixed relationship with our, when our audience will not do that. <laughs> when they will not cross over into our world. Because we're really trying to get get them to come on over and come enjoy, but they don't, they want their world the way it is and the, they leave. And maybe it's our fault because we're not good at what we do. And maybe it's their fault for being too uh, narrow-minded. So, I mean, that's how I see the movie and, and why it's sort of a, a little exciting to me and, and maybe worth writing about. Because the movie does, and this isn't just me, the movie gets very self-reflexive. It, it becomes, at, by the end of the movie, John Trent is watching himself in a theater. There's a movie called In the Mouth of Madness starring John Trent, directed by John Carpenter, and he's watching scenes from the movie in it, and he starts to go mad. You know, so it's not, I'm not putting this kind of reflection on... Um, uh, this movie is a kind of model for the audience, audience artist relationship. It's not, I'm not just throwing this on here. It's in there. You know, you're, it's a very kind of self-reflexive, uh, movie. I like the whole bit with, uh, when he's talking to Charlton Heston, trying to get him to stop putting the book out because anyone who reads, it's going to go mad. And then somehow it comes up that they're making a movie of it. And then it turns out that's the movie we're watching. So we're kind of part of the movie now. We're going to go mad from watching the movie. I just like, I like little fourth wall kind of things like that. I, I really like that Me that too. ending and that sort of reflexive quality of it. And, you know, reflecting on what we want out of art and what we resist uh, also out of art, what we won't go to as someone who makes things that's uh, of uh, of primary interest to me why people won't cross over i will admit the first time i watched this i hated the ending i loved the movie but i hated the end but then the second time i watched it it was like this is great of course that's how it has to end <laughs> yeah i don't know what oh, the I switch love was it. but yeah i love the ending it yeah. is sort of the logical conclusion but i think the 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 movie does work like john was saying the movie works in kind of uh, a lot of generic shorthand like even the asylum is it's totally a, it's a kind of movie asylum yes you get it immediately the writing on the wall thing you know and i think you have to see some more i think if you just think oh this is dumb you can kind of dismiss it but there's a self-awareness here this is a guy who has and he's sort of built this genre you know yeah. uh you know i mean at least from the seven you know so it, it there's a kind of self-awareness here uh, that you have to feel like you're in on him. <laughs> I it's think almost maybe like, to get it. It's like his last action hero. You know, yes. you're in that yes. kind of movie That's world. Right. Yeah. That's right. So the last thing I wanted to ask about is I was unaware of this, but apparently Carpenter called the, in the Mouth of Madness the conclusion to his apocalypse trilogy. And this includes The Thing and The Prince of Darkness. 
how do you feel these films are connected? Because I was unaware there was a connection. That's, I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but I will say in watching uh, this big chunk of John Carpenter, he has that side of him that's like a, a working man's genre side, you know, genre side, like he's a, he's a genre director. He's got these working man protagonists uh, with, you know, wisecracks and kind of anti-authority. Uh, but he does also have a kind of political aspect to him as well. Like these are things, I mean, they live as the most overt, but like those are also, of course, in things like Escape from New York, uh, where uh, we take all our criminals, uh, throw them into Manhattan and get rid of the bridges. You know, I mean, the, this is social <laughs> commentary, you know. I think that is his angle. Like, you know, I think he's very aware of a kind of, you know, a kind of moral rot in a uh, in, in in our society, and I think he's making these uh, commentaries on, uh, you know, what the natural extension of that is, uh, whether it's the uh, sort of soulless pushing of art on people uh, through publicity that happens in Mouth of Madness, or the kind of soulless uh, uh, secret campaign of you know, obey, obey, obey that's in, in that they live. I think that's the thing. He, his movies actually do have something to say, but we don't, we don't often talk about that because they're, they're, they're fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he is this guy from California who's, uh, he's, I don't know what his politics are, but I would think somewhere on the, uh, on the liberal side, uh, but with a strong individualist bent. He is not a kind of a follower. He has a very strong uh, respect for the individual you see in his work. But yeah, I think that's where the apocalypse comes. But I don't, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but that's my guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, just to throw in one idea I had, um, you know, the first to uh, the thing in Prince of Darkness, they're pretty clearly parallel. It's like a group of people kind of coming together against this, sort of supernatural or religious force. They're all kind of battling. And then it's kind of inverted in In the Mouth of Madness, where instead of like the one supernatural force, he's kind of, it's like a fish out of water thing where everything's been kind of inverted. And he's the normal one in a world where everything else is crazy. It's kind of a fun little uh, exploration, you know, of the other side of it. Uh, he does seem to have a an interest in uh, man amok. <laughs> mm -hmm. Man, I think that would be his uh, through line in those movies. You know, us amok, and that we're and that he humbles us with something bigger, the unknown, whether it's the thing, whether it's the Prince of Darkness, the anti <laughs> the anti Jesus, or whether in our case, whether it's an evil book. <laughs> All right, I think that's probably a good place to wrap this up. We're going to take a quick little break, and we'll be back to talk about John Carpenter's Vampires. Have you ever seen a vampire? Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. It's not like they're seducing everybody in sight with cheesy Euro trash accents, all right? They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. You want to kill one, you drive a wooden stake right through his heart. Normally, with this show, we look at 
kind of different eras of this director. This one's different because it's 1994 and 1998. Not a ton happened between these, so I think we're kind of clear just to jump straight into vampires, unless you guys want to mention anything about the movies in between these. More flops. <laughs> I rewatched Escape from L.A. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it is kind of fun. It's it's very slight, but it's it's it almost plays like kind of it's almost like a naked gun version of Escape from New York. Not that yes. Escape from New York isn't funny, but it's like it's a riff on it. Uh, it it's much more of a comedy. They're having more fun. Uh, yeah, it's not as somber. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I the '90s were not great for him, like commercially at least. Uh, I actually, Vampires is I think was his biggest money maker, which is bizarre. His, yeah, his only number one film of the '90s. Probably just the the name recognition, you know, Vampires. Yeah, I want to go see a movie about vampires. Yeah, and the Mouth of Madness. What's that? Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go in there. Memoirs Ooh, of an uh, Invisible Man. <laughs> oh, this is kind of his uh, past his prime uh, period. <laughs> yes. I'll say in the Math of Madness, this is his last great film, personally. Yeah. But <laughs> So this is mm-hmm. his 19th film, though, and I did love in the commentary. He said, this is my 19th film, my 15th score. So he kind of sees those <laughs> as one. Uh, but this is based on the book Vampires with a dollar sign for the S. I'm assuming you two have both read it. <laughs> Yes. yes yes cover to cover excellent okay so john you selected this movie and before we started recording you admitted this is not your favorite but yes i'm so excited to talk about this one because there's so much going on and i think you're in a similar boat absolutely it's it's you know as i was saying before it's it's definitely not my favorite but uh it's got a lot of ideas that are fun it's got a lot of um a lot of things that feel very Carpenter, you know, between seeing this and Prince of Darkness recently. And then, of, you know, of course, I've seen the thing a bunch. It's got a very similar kind of, you know, the ragtag working man group coming together to, you know, take on some like incredible evil, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, which which I like. And, you know, I also I am. Uh, you know, James Woods is such a fascinating yes, actor to yes, me. I yes. mean, his politics are bizarre, but uh, I just, I like watching him, even when he's, he's so unlikable in this movie. He is so unlikable in this movie, but I kind of like that. No, uh, it's true. It's like there's, this movie is, has attitude. Yes. And it has personality, <laughs> despite not being completely successful it has attitude and it has personality and it has a baldwin brother what more do you need it has everybody's favorite (laughs) daniel Daniel. (laughs) so john this movie is called vampires yes do you want to give us a quick rundown on the plot yeah, I mean, I'll give you a, a very quick rundown. It's basically James Woods uh, leads this team. I mean, it's almost like Twister. Um, he's got this kind of group yes. of, <laughs> you know, experts that have their like wacky equipment and they kind of have a an easygoing camaraderie. It starts off in there, um, you know, on kind of a not routine, but kind of for them a routine call. Um, that goes bad and a bunch of them get killed and 
basically the movie is kind of about uh you know james woods trying to retrieve this ancient relic that uh if the vampires get it then they'll be able to go into the sunlight so it's that's sort of the 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 nutshell version of it right? yes you mentioned this movie has attitude i mean the first scene the first time we see these characters james woods is in his leather jack with binoculars checking out a house and Daniel Baldwin's on the side of the road peeing. I mean, yes. <laughs> it wastes no time in establishing the, the mood of this film. <laughs> One thing we hadn't really talked about is just how masculine a lot of his movies are. Yes. I mean, you, you, you alluded to it, Steve, earlier. But yeah, this one is like... <laughs> this one's a little off the charts. It's a little... I mean, this feels like... Uh, I know, right. Daniel, like, Baldwin, literally, first time you see him, his his wieners in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And then one of the next times we see him, he's holding a human skull and telling the priest, nothing like a little head, eh, Padre? <laughs> there are a lot of dick jokes. In yes. This. Yes, there yeah. are. <laughs> a lot of dick jokes. A concerning I mean, amount. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Troubling. <laughs> but, you know, being Carpenter, he, you know, he, he kind of takes... Uh, the vampire legend kind of puts his own spin on it, um, you know, and uh, he, like I think we mentioned, these these I love all the little contraptions and things they have. They will like, a, you know, shoot a harpoon or something into the vampire and then turn on the that's connected to uh, the truck or a winch or something. And it drags them out into the sunlight and they burst into flames like i love all that stuff it's really... it has it has a like a 13 year old boy like yes. quality to it that i think <laughs> anyone who was a 13 year old boy uh uh which you know would include all us uh yes it's enjoyable uh you know anything using a, a truck uh, like a jeep winch like yes. you know you never get to use one of those in real life so <laughs> <laughs> it's great seeing those and the fact you can use them to hunt vampires is like oh wow it's the best uh you know and i do like the way the vampires uh burst into flames uh that, whatever yeah, that yeah. effect is that they're using is you know we've all seen a lot of vampires die in the sunlight and this is a good I don't. I don't know how it. To me, it looks like a practical effect, but I'm assuming they're not burning people. So, well, I watched like the first twenty minutes of the commentary, and I was kind of half paying attention. And Carpenter mentioned like, yeah, some people almost got hurt with this because we set them on fire. So, I think there are real. So maybe flames, they are burning people. I'm yeah. not sure how they pulled it off. Yeah, <laughs> they're using kind of you know those like uh, those like little uh, special little packets you can throw into a campfire. And it turns the flame all green and everything. Have you ever seen those? You've never I seen those. Don't know about oh. this. <laughs> we never mind. Your Halloween well, sounds a lot that, more fun than that. Out. Yeah, <laughs> never mind. But the thing I like about his spin is that the these vampire hunters are these kind of regular guys, and they and their job is like plumbing. Yes, it's like yes. tough. And yes. he, they've got to hammer it in, and it goes wrong, and it's messy, and there's nothing glamorous about it. It's yes. very difficult, and it's they like, got to cut heads off and bury people, and it's toil, you know. And I I enjoyed that about it watching watching James Woods just like having to hammer these things in, and everything's <laughs> yes. going wrong. 
And he, he, then he has to go clean up a bunch of bodies and cut all these heads off. And Yeah, again, just they're just, I mean, in a, in a way, it's like Sam Neill. They're just doing their job, you know? They're just trying to get through the day doing their job. It's like the Ghostbusters without, you know, all of New York watching them. They're just like, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Desert just Ghostbusters. Just doing the yes. work. Yeah, yeah, just doing the work. No glory. Yeah, no glory, just toil. A pretty kick-ass motel after party after that first one, yes. though. I love... <laughs> that's one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, it's good. And a good massacre, too. That At the, yes. at the hotel is where the... the, uh, the I, what's his name? I don't, the head vampire comes and uh, takes revenge for them cleaning out the, uh, uh, the nest and killing all his vampire buddies. Uh, and pretty some pretty brutal stuff in there. There is yes. one I really like that kill that he does <laughs> where he like sticks his hand in that guy and then like splits him up the middle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's yes. a good. It's a nice good, you know, he's doing it's like the movie's just like a little more hardcore than your uh your average classy vampire. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, uh movie and uh yeah, it's enjoyable. <laughs> The uh, I was just gonna say like uh, the Carpenters like this huge Hawks fan and that's like the Hawks people they just do their work they do their job they're professionals and they have this code that you don't quite understand and this movie does that wacko <laughs> does kind of a wacko version of it a sort of forced unsuccessful version of it <laughs> where they keep trying they remember they keep saying like. Rule number five. Yes. And then yeah. <laughs> never bury a team member by yourself or whatever. Yeah. And they keep, they keep, you know, sort of sending up all these rules. And the, the idea of this sort of strategy of like that you're kind of trying to teach the audience to be a professional is that they're drawn into that and they, and that you slowly draw them and teach them how the world of the professional works. And then they feel like they're part of the team. But you like never feel like you're part of this team. <laughs> Nor do you really want to be part of the be, team. No, you do <laughs> not want to be. They're like they're they're you. I think in their defense, they might say that they're just being really mean to vampires. But there's like a serious case of like misogyny yes. <laughs> going on in here. And uh, they would probably say that they are—they don't see gender; they only see that these are vampires. Uh, or the, but they've got this hooker that they're carrying around, and they are really, really mean to her. <laughs> yeah, Cheryl Lee, right? Yes, yeah. Laura Palmer, right? Laura Palmer. Yeah, they're really, really, really mean to that prostitute. Yeah, uh, and it—it it is unsettling. <laughs> yeah, like why don't you just? Get rid of the whore, throw her out of the truck, or it's like what? Yes, it's it's, it's off-putting. It is yeah. off-putting. They, it they is go off-putting. a bit far. <laughs> it is the, but it is actually this kind of like if you ever see uh, Hawks's Only Angels Have Wings, there is a kind of like callousness <laughs> that you see in the men. Yes. At first, Gene Arthur is coming into that situation, and she's she's like, "Why don't you guys cry when your people die?" You know, because the pilots are sort of dying, and eventually she realizes they show their emotion differently, that they do have feelings, that they're not callous, and there really does seem to be an attempt to do that here. That we initially see them 
as like James Wood as as like, well, they have to be, you know, oh, yeah. yes, they're very cruel and to these people and to this captive vampire they have, but they have to be that way. But that part never really happens right. <laughs> where you understand why they have to be like that. I mean, I guess you assume, look, they get bitten if they're not yeah. really nasty. To these, I guess that's what you're supposed to be like. But then, you know, Daniel Baldwin, who's like the meanest to this woman, falls in love with her. <laughs> right. <laughs> like inexplicably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, really, uh, it's really quite odd. So I have to ask the obvious question. When you think of action movie duos, is James Woods <laughs> partnered with Daniel Baldwin the first thing on your fantasy team? <laughs> Definitely not. Although I as I said, I do find James Woods kind of intriguing. I mean, I like he he takes a lot of roles where he plays just like uh, an unrepentant dick yeah you know like a <laughs> cop like that i kind of like that about him uh i mean you know the characters aren't likable but uh he has that weird intensity and this there's is... an intelligence yes, in him yes, that you yes. that you sort of key into and you're 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 intrigued yes and uh, a kind of uh uh an authenticity or like a realness to his uh attitude or something but yeah uh not you know not not the first two come to mind but not bad i would not rather have alec baldwin for this movie (laughs) that would not be an improvement would it Uh, hard to say if you had any of the other ball i mean clearly this is not the most expensive baldwin (laughs) the affordable to, to hire but i actually think he's fine for this yeah, he kind of has like a Michael Madsen kind of thing. He has a plumber type quality yeah. to him. Uh, and it's sort of appropriate for the work he's doing. I mean, you know, he's not, uh, I don't know. I, I think he's all right for this. Carpenter's never had those. I mean, am I? he's never had those kind of matinee idol type things. He's always had these Kurt kind Russell's of- Kurt Russell's such a pretty face. But he kind of makes him his own thing. I mean, he puts a eye patch on him, or I'd say Carpenter used him in ways no other directors would have. Yeah, I mean, his whole career is really Carpenter. I mean, the the most interesting stuff I think mm-hmm. is, you know, that and you know maybe Death Proof, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, uh, <laughs> you know, which is really a playing off as kind of Pliskin type persona. You know, I was thinking once while we were talking about the other one uh, that his focus on evil, I, that is one charm of Carpenter is his simplicity. He, he, it's like, no, he keeps it very simple. This is about evil. Uh, and, uh, and so I think he works really well in these kind of uh, genre settings where he can just, it's just, it is pure evil. Uh, and that is what we are fighting here. Yeah, and I'm and you know, James Woods is no Kurt Russell, but at the same time you can kind of see this uh these guys existing in the same world as some of those Kurt Russell right. ones. I mean, you could see kind of like an Avengers type <laughs> matchup or you know what I mean, where the, each each person has their own little movie, but you know, you could see them kind of being from the same world. From what I read the 
the budget was like pulled on this movie at the last minute, like they lost two thirds of their money. And I, I would be interested to know, like from an insider, like what effect does yes, that have? You're right. The, the movie does feel a little oddly paced at times and like kind of patched together. And I do wonder like what, was lost did they lose days of shooting like they lost script or did they lose effects budget or like what or did they have alec and then they had to go down to daniel <laughs> that would explain the hotel scene <laughs> yes yeah what what did they lose there according to wikipedia which who knows but it says that it was set to be made at a budget of 60 million was slashed to 20 million at the last minute and then to accommodate these budgetary concerns, uh, Carpenter wrote his own screenplay, taking elements from the other scripts, the book, and some of his own ideas, uh, alongside writer and frequent collaborator Michael DeLuca. Wow, mm-hmm. oh, there you go. So a total rewrite when he had the the budget. There is something, I mean, and I this is probably not due to that, but I found there's a lot of weird kind of dissolves in this movie (laughs) where they do these passages of either him cleaning bodies or like, or, or kind of disposing of things. And there's some odd, I find for somebody who I like his movies because of the drive they have, I find this one is off for me. Like it sags in the middle uh, and the, the beginning's very good. And I, I do think the end kind of sort of gets, get some get some blood pumping uh by the end but it doesn't have that kind of great pace it's got a couple of standout sequences uh and it, it does i don't know it's to me it's a, a lesson in just how hard it is to keep everything together when you're a 60 year old guy or however old he was you know making a movie uh in a system that you know is slashing his budget and you know i mean it's hard making movies and i i think this is an example of them doing a a quick rewrite and it just not quite gelling it's <laughs> good yeah point, yeah um sorry to interrupt with more wikipedia but <laughs> no please <laughs> back to the important uh, I, part. <laughs> I, I thought this was interesting uh apparently Alec Baldwin was cast to play Montoya, but dropped out and recommended the role to his brother. That's kind really of interesting. I don't know if he <laughs> dropped out because of the budget or what, but he was supposed to. Well, that is interesting. I prefer his brother. <laughs> yeah. Not overall, but in this, right. it's kind of like a he's just more ragtag. So in an interview with Mick Garris, John Carpenter said if he could make any type of movie it would be a Western. It's like the one thing he's never done these wanted to do. To me, this feels like the closest we have to a Carpenter Western. Um, he described it as the Wild Bunch meets Vlad the Impaler. But how do you feel Carpenter could have adapted to a Western? Because that's something that I could see being great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, oddly, something like Ghosts of Mars or Assault on Precinct 13 also have kind of elements of that genre they're both kind of remakes of rio bravo yeah the the western yeah uh yeah i mean i i think he likes the i think he would be good in in a kind of setting where there is a kind of uh flexible moral system uh like the wild west where you you know you you can sort of forge your own kind of frontier moral morality 
because that's what his characters all are. They're they're nonconformist individualist types, and so you can see why he's drawn to like those westerns. There, the these are west westerns are populated by doers, people who are forging things, making things, forging the frontier, and they also are fierce individualists with their own kind of moral code, and that's kind of what he does. Uh, and it's a very action-oriented uh, genre. You know, it's about moving and going forward. <laughs> and his movies are very forward, uh, you know, moving. Or they're about being trapped, uh, like uh, like a Rio Bravo. Uh, so I don't. It seems like it would be a good a good fit for him. I don't. You know, he should have tried to make a western. I yeah, think. I mean, he should have made Cowboys. Versus aliens or whatever. If anybody should, he would have yeah. been good with some kind of western with a supernatural element. You know, I was thinking these these this crew kind of reminds reminded me of like a you know a Hell's Angels or you know some kind of a biker gang, which also feels kind of westerny in a way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I would I I I would love to have seen him do some kind of western i mean this this definitely uh, i think you're right i think this definitely is probably the closest it gets to it it's got the whole kind of revenge thing where the vampires killed his parents or whatever i mean that feels kind of that kind of very clear morality of westerns where you know the bad guy you know killed people that you love and you have to go face down the guy you know and some kind of desolate setting which a lot of this is so one thing i did love about this movie is how the typical vampire rules kind of apply but not really like they have these giant machine guns and they're just Mm -hmm. unloading on them they're like oh it's just (laughs) stunning them like the Mm -hmm. only way you can kill them is by decapitating them or burning them or stake through the heart yeah but they still have these giant ass machine guns. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how do you how do you feel about the because they even have like a rule system that kind of like Zombie Land, like oh these rules just pop up, but you don't see the whole rule set. I mean, how do you feel about how they track down the vampires? I mean, again, it's a thirteen year old kid thing, like to be able to just have them just firing and firing at these people and not have it be quite as graphic or disturbing, and you know they're not really getting hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just looks exhausting. What I like about it is it just looks exhausting. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you sort you respect the work ethic. <laughs> he draws you into the work ethic of, uh, you know, you're burning a lot of calories. I mean, these guys are really hard to kill. I mean, the my favorite scene in the end is where they, uh, where James Woods is trying to kill that guy and he's getting dragged out of the out of the nest. Uh, with like on top of the guy trying to pound the stake in, and then the guy is starting to light on fire as he's as he's like it, that's like what the movie could have been like. It get it finally works up to a kind of hysteria uh, that uh, that you can see in some of his uh, uh, his his great movies. But there there's so much you know there's so much mucky. Like why does is there a plot reason why Daniel Baldwin ties the vampire up nude to the bed? Why does why does she have to be nude? Nineties, no. <laughs> it probably it's, sold more tickets. Yes, I guess. 
it's just there are things in there that and that he does this to her and then like in it's like five minutes later he's like decided that he's in love with her and uh, he's like tossing her around and beating her it's just like it does it's miscalculated this thing uh and uh it's too bad because there's something kind of sweet and tender about Daniel Baldwin falling in love with this girl. Uh, and I, I, as the sort of uh, weakest Baldwin, I have kind of a underdog affection for this guy. Uh, <laughs> and he lets himself get bit by her. And, you know, he's just like a little kindness. And, he, you know, he gets bit. He tries to save her from uh, jumping off the ledge and she bites him. Uh, you know, a little kindness, which I guess is supposed to show us that he should have been very mean to her and be been hitting it, but it doesn't really. Yeah, work I that couldn't way. tell if it was if it was supposed to be like he, you know, has kind of let go of all of his humanity. He's like treating her, you know, he's stripping her nude and stuff. Um, which I I don't know. I I felt like maybe he was supposed to have been shown to have gone too far um and it's sort of a contrast to james woods and just showing you how the fine line they have to walk or something but yeah it was it was very muddy i couldn't quite figure out what <laughs> muddy and what they just, were trying to say and what do you want us to feel about it as your audience exactly. like i was yeah. like what am i supposed to feel like are why are yeah you know, it it just doesn't really come together but no. i do actually like it a lot better when he's in love with her uh and then he lets her finally uh she like chomps on his neck and the they're they're kind of off in their jeep or something and he yeah. he chomps on her neck and he gives this like <laughs> do you remember that close up of him when he like kind of like <laughs> crosses his eyes <laughs> it's like a real like naked gun like get, it's kind of like a kicked in the nuts uh but kind of uh, uh thing right, but right, he's right. like he gives like a kind of like eye cross thing as she's like sucking his blood out right it's right. Uh, unintentionally comic i gotta say my favorite daniel baldwin part in this is when he's taking care of her and he's like you need to eat a burger because that'll stop the vampire infection <laughs> Yes, it's it's not full of wit, this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. I mean, that's the thing. He's got these, sometimes these, he has these characters that are kind of lovably average. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, uh, you know, Kurt Russell was very good at doing that, like with, uh, you know, Jack Burton. But uh, this guy's just average. (laughs) And not lovable, you know, it's an unlovably yeah. average, you know. James Woods in this movie, like, if you're thinking about what a real life vampire hunter would look like, it kind of clicked, <laughs> like, that's what it would be. Like, it wouldn't be Chris Pratt with like a futuristic machine gun, you know, it's like, it's probably no. James Woods in a leather jacket, you know? yeah, in a leather jacket, yeah, you know, it's very yes. dog the bounty hunter, <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, <laughs> yes, it is, it is. I mean, I yeah. There is a movie. There could have been a movie in here. Exactly. There's I, I so many script issues, interesting elements and things. I think it's a script issue too, and I think them having to rewrite the script at the last minute, if that's indeed what happened, I mean that definitely explains a lot. <laughs> yes, there is a really good that 
the it's in the trailer that sequence where they rise up out of the earth all all seven of them the vampires that is a a visual delight Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, to see them all kind of come up out of the uh, out of the earth and it it has enough of those kind of moments in it that you kind of you kind of stick with it but it is it really is it to me it's the the thing it's missing is that rhythm that builds into the hysteria like there's a peak moment in the end where the the crossbow fight like Dan, I think it's Daniel Baldwin fires the crossbow into the cross that uh, James Woods is crucified on, uh, and they're about to burn him, uh, and then like whips it away. It's like tied to his uh, his winch, <laughs> and kind yeah. of whips him away. And it just sort of it just lands like a turd that moment. Like it that should be like a great moment uh, of like a really crazy escape, and it just kind of like just thuds there on the ground it's kind of missing that momentum and build of uh uh of action yeah one thing i do like about it though is i i like you know uh it's sort of taking the vampire pageantry and all that stuff and throwing it out the window and making them more uh just kind of like these evil creatures and I and, you know, in the, the vampire hunters are just these regular working class guys kind of like working with the church in some capacity. And I like that all the locations are a lot of them are very desolate. I, I like the whole idea of this imagining that this world exists kind of right under our noses in these kind of forgotten towns and faraway places uh, with them just sort of traveling from place to place you know across the country like that's a really fun idea it just doesn't work (laughs) it just doesn't work but it is a fun idea but it is a fun idea i do the the connection to the church isn't isn't maybe the best part of that there's this kind of training uh that's going on between uh woods and the young priest that's supposed to be like the the guy that like brings us into the group as like the novice and everything but he just seems like kind of frustratingly naive uh and uh and James Woods is like unbearable unbearably violent <laughs> to him right it's yeah like, the it's like you're irritated with him and then James Wood is like too violent with him and it's like everything <laughs> is like it's like you didn't like him, but you didn't you didn't not like him that much. Like don't don't like brutalize. Him. <laughs> like yes, it's, yes. It's all just seems kind of miscalculated. I do like Maximilian Shell too. Uh, when he becomes the uh, uh, the you find out he's the he's the kind of the cardinal uh, who ends up being in with the vampires. Yes, uh, he, he has he he's he well cast as a, 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 a traitor priest i thought yes. uh, so this one is kind of similar to prince of darkness in the sense that he takes religion and then kind of bends it to his own world because you know prince of darkness is like okay well the bible didn't really tell us the true story but that's what was easier to sell and this one is just like well yeah the catholic church created vampires on accident so they just pretended it was fiction the whole time. And like, here they are just like this military unit, essentially trying to eradicate them from the earth. <laughs> yes. So how do you feel Carpenter 
works with religion because it is similar to like his it's almost a western but it's like almost using religion in this so i I don't know if that's phrased well but (laughs) i think it's just like all the nonsense about uh uh, physics and uh in prince of darkness i think it's just a system that is wrong it's just it's a system that men made that is wrong (laughs) you know and i i think that's as much as he i don't think he has anything profound to say about religion really uh I, i think it's just the man has these systems whether it's science or whether it's religion or whether it's uh our politics that organizes uh and and they're usually wrong yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the individualist has to hold on to their their self-reliance and their uh their gut instincts and their inner snake pliskin basically <laughs> you know he's not that kind of issue oriented director where he's like he doesn't seem to have any uh, statement, grand statement about religion. Right. It seems to be he's using it as a as a means to his ends, which are to give you access to the unknown or dramatize the unknown, or as the organized part that gets it wrong about something, <laughs> you know. And the the we're gonna find the real answer. The the working people are gonna find yes. the world the the real answer. You know, he uses it to to his, you know, to his purposes. But I don't know. Maybe he hates religion. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I think the last important thing about Carpenter as a whole that we haven't really touched is his soundtracks. It's It still strikes me as odd how many people don't know that he wrote the theme song for Halloween when that yeah. is pretty much as famous as the movie itself. Mm. Um, he's currently not retired from filmmaking but he said he's only going to direct a film if it's like something he really wants to do and he's a touring musician right now and this one he recorded with donald duck dunn and steve cropper from Stax records and the blues brothers <laughs> like it's just insane some of the people he brings in and but yeah i mean his soundtracks are such a huge part of his work this one is kind of dirty blues but how do you feel it ties in what I like about his soundtracks is just that they're simple mm, and, yeah. you know, movie music, you have to be careful about it kind of, you know, getting to like prog rock makes bad movie music usually, <laughs> although there's a great use of yes. And that, um, what's that Buffalo 66, but <laughs> you know, as score, you know, is usually not the right, uh, uh, right choice. And I, I love, I mean, that's the thing about the Halloween. It's really simple um and uh he's you know he's really good at simple and like you know his focus on evil uh his his rhythmic drive of his cutting he he has an appreciation for like setting something up very slowly varying the themes and then getting it to kind of spin out (laughs) uh and you know that's in him as i guess as a musician as well i think he would say that it was kind of a utilitarian budget decision Mm -hmm. uh i think i've heard him say that i hope i'm not lying halloween he has said that yeah and as a filmmaker i would love to be able to play music it's really expensive to get the rights to films or to hire a composer and so i think a lot of it has been utilitarian but i did notice though that you know, I think the thing has, I, I actually was very shocked. I thought he had done the score to the thing, but he hired like the premier composer 
of that time, Ennio uh, Morricone. Yeah. And oh, right. uh, that, yeah, and uh, um, and then he had him do a carpenter score of like, burr, burr, <laughs> you know, like one note, <laughs> burr, burr. Like, it's like, why did you hire that guy? If you were just going to do one of these things. So it it isn't just, you know, his simplicity isn't just um, uh, because he can't play tricky. <laughs> you know, it, it is actually something he, it's part of his aesthetic. It's not a lack of technical skill. Um, you know, it, because look, he hires somebody who can do anything and he gets them to play bump, bump, bump. Anyway, I like, I mean, I like, I thought the score worked. It's, you know, it's kind of got a sort of, yeah, heavy blues. It's, it's the score for James Woods in a leather jacket yeah. killing vampires. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's like. It's kind of every man, yeah. you know. Yeah. Nothing special rock kind of. Yeah, it's you know? not too special. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't listen to this at home, but it's appropriate for, it's a, it's appropriate for Daniel Baldwin and James yeah. Woods. Like they would maybe go to like House of Blues afterwards or something and have a it's steak. It's not what's wrong. <laughs> it's not what's wrong with this movie. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. It's not the problem. It's not the problem. We've really been well, I guess we've been I think we've been fair to the movie. I will say I did watch this in the theater and I remember coming out and being like, all right, good enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you know, it gave me enough. Yes. You know, and I would still sort of recommend it. Certainly to anyone, a Carpenter fan, I would, it's certainly a Carpenter scholar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend it, but maybe even a fan. No, I, I, I'm with you. I, I enjoy it. I think it has some fun ideas. It has some wildly miscalculated parts and uh, some really bad jokes um but uh but uh but yeah i do like the world and i yeah i love the i love the opening i love that motel scene i love how they're like rock stars kind of you know just trying to get by and paying off the cop and i love all that stuff so i think that probably covers vampires fairly i'd say mm -hmm. um i think we're coming to the end though so Let's make a pick. I think you've kind of both teased it, but does someone want to go first? Vampires versus In the Mouth of Madness. Which one are you taking and why? Steve. <laughs> mouth, mouth of Madness because it is better. <laughs> <laughs> and that's no, the end it's of the his most, his most complete, his most, and I would say maybe his last, I, I mean, I'm trying to think, I think it is his last great film. It's his last thing where he really swung. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the other ones are really kind of limping along. Yeah, I agree for 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 mostly the same reasons. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a lot more in the mouth of madness. It's just a lot more originality. Sure, it's riffing on Stephen King, but it goes way beyond that. And uh, it it's just got so many fun ideas, kind of in it. Uh, in the mouth of madness, though, by a mile. <laughs> I have to agree with both of you, but. John, I will admit, this is one that I had not watched, and I honestly probably wouldn't have watched, so I do appreciate you bringing this in, because that's the type of thing the show's about, is standing up for the movies that no one ever does, so 
I know you didn't pick it, but yeah, absolutely. I didn't pick it, but uh, I I do uh, I do think it's worth watching. I do think it's just kind of an interesting failure and kind of fun to think what might have been. Uh, there were two sequels to this, by the way. I learned tonight. I really? did not what? know about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, one produced by Carpenter, the other seemingly not related at all. But that's for another podcast. <laughs> Yeah, John Bon Jovi is the lead in the the, oh. the sequel. <laughs> oh maybe they're great. <laughs> maybe maybe they're great. It's a big leap of faith. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, do you guys have any final thoughts on John Carpenter before we close it out? Or no, I kind of just wish he. I wish he had a couple of more good movies in the '90s, and I, I I I wish we got a little more out of him. But he gave us a lot. He did. <laughs> He worked very, very hard from like 77 to like 92 or, you know, I mean, he like really right. worked hard. And then it just started petering out, getting harder to make movies. And I'm sure he probably got tired of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that's sort of a sad note to end on. But I, I wish we had some more. <laughs> Me too. Because when he's good, I really like his uh, I like his style and his. he's got real uh, attitude. And I like it. John, Steve, I mean, this has been a blast. Thank you both for joining us and talking about John Carpenter. Anytime. Thank you. Yeah, well, we're happy to come back. Thank you for listening to another episode of Split Picks. October Horror is going strong right now. Head over to Split Tooth Media to see everything we've been writing about. And we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>